Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Queen Elizabeth II leaves Buckingham Palace for the last time. Should Monday have been a stat holiday in Canada, and how much would it cost the economy? Paul and Shona join me for the GMH Roundtable. Running for mayor or council in Hamilton will cost you a good chunk of cash. Ukraine makes big gains against the Russian military. And is there life beyond our solar system? And will we ever find it? The GMH Podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. The coffin of Queen Elizabeth II has returned to Buckingham Palace as crowds gather to bid her a final farewell, which they will do so for the rest of this week. And, of course, on Monday with the Queen's funeral, which you can hear live right here on 900 CHML on Monday starting at 6 a.m., um, in London to provide us with coverage of what is happening over the next few days is Ben O'Hara Burney's, the host of A Little More Conversation, which you can hear weeknights on 900 CHML beginning at 10 p.m. Ben, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks, Rick. Where do we find you in London today? I'm right in front of Westminster Abbey. Actually, I've I'm, uh, I'm just been walking around today. Uh, we've been, uh, I've got to see really the lineup waiting to pay their respects once the Queen begins to lie in state a little later today at Westminster Hall, which is right across from where I am. Um, and spoke to some people there, including Canadians, lots of people eager, uh, been there since dawn or earlier, some arrived even uh, the night before last to try and get a spot. So lots of people here uh, eager to pay their final respects to the Queen when she begins to lie in state uh, a little later today. As you mentioned, there will be a procession that will leave Buckingham Palace. Uh, the chapters denotes uh, 90 minutes time, a little more than that, uh, to bring the coffin to Westminster Hall. Um, and a lot of people will be lining the route for that as well. Uh, when that takes place, uh, we expect to see the King as well as um, uh, the Prince of Wales, William, uh, Duke of Sussex, Harry as well, will walk alongside or behind uh, the horse-drawn carriage that will be carrying the Queen's coffin. It's a pretty short trip from uh, from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall, uh, but that will happen uh, a little later this afternoon, uh, as well as other the Queen's children. So uh, that's sort of the highly anticipated part of the day. Uh, and then after that, as you mentioned, the lying in state will begin and uh, people are expected to file through by the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands over the next five days. I was watching uh, the coverage last night on Global National with uh, Donna Friesen, uh, the Queen arriving at Buckingham Palace under a pretty steady rain, but that did not dissuade thousands of onlookers who were there to try to grab a glimpse of the procession of the motorcade. What, what's the mood like on the street today? Yeah, I, I was there. I was there last night as well um, in the crowds, waiting to see uh, with them, waiting to see uh, the coffin come back home, really. They were there to both sort of say welcome and say farewell. Uh, the, the mood has been interesting because, it, because it, it, it's, not, it's not somber. Uh, most of the people that I've been obviously people had to wait for hours uh, to try and find a good vantage point in the rain last night. And everyone just wanted to share stories about what they remembered about the Queen, you know, whether it was her coronation or whether it was, you know, the birth of Charles or whether, you know, earlier even, uh, the coronation, her Diamond Jubilee, different things that happened to her over the years, different times that they have seen her in different parts of the world. Everyone just kind of wanted to share stories about about the Queen and their memories and, and the impact they had on them personally. It, it, it's, it's interesting that way because while she was, you know, the Queen, uh, the Queen, the monarch, a lot of people here particularly had a seem to have what they would consider a, a fairly personal relationship. You know, they they um, they considered her sort of a part of the family to some extent. So you're hearing a lot of that, I think. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of shock last, late last week. It was sudden in many ways, even though she was 96. Uh, but when you talk to people now, I think the shock has passed. Uh, the idea was that, of course, you know, she'd lived a great life, uh, that she had devoted that life to being queen. And I think a lot of people are just reminiscing and talking about uh, how they want to pay tribute to her then.
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Ben O'Hara-Byrne, host of A Little More Conversation, which you can hear weeknights at 10 p.m. on 900 CHML. Ben is in London to provide us with coverage of the Queen's funeral, which will happen on Monday, 6 a.m., right here on 900 CHML. You'll be able to hear it live. You talk about those personal connections that people have with the Queen. Um, again, from Global National, a great little piece on some of the mementos that are being um, left at Buckingham Palace uh, amongst all the flowers there's little Paddington bears, which the Queen had a relationship with in connection with her marmalade sandwiches. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people remember some of those moments uh, from her. That was her Platinum Jubilee. But even from the Olympics with her appearance with Daniel Craig, you know, there were some moments captured in the last decade or so where we saw a bit of a different side of, of the Queen that maybe we hadn't seen as much of earlier, that sort of mirthful, happy, joyous, kind of funny side. And certainly that skit with Paddington uh, ahead of the ahead of the Platinum Jubilee uh, resonated a lot. And I think not only do you see the bears, now that they're, they're trying to dissuade people from leaving bears. They're hoping people will simply leave flowers because the bears have to go somewhere afterwards. So they've been encouraging people to draw the bear. So there's a lot of those. But everywhere you look, there's these incredible little uh, mementos that people have left, often written notes that will all be gathered afterwards. Um, and from all ages, too, and from all different walks of life. And there are tourists uh, who come to leave flowers there kids. There are obviously people who come from outside of London to do so. There are people from right across the country. You know, London is a huge multicultural place. There are people from all different, uh, all different backgrounds who have come to leave similar notes. You know, and, and the Paddington one, though, is, is a dominant theme. You see a lot of little Paddington, Paddington drawings and, and a few bears here and there as well. So you know, I, th- I think it's just a way that, that people, people right now feel like they've lost something. And the, the difficulty with that is trying to express that loss. And I think many people feel that personal relationship, as I was mentioning, with the Queen in some ways. And so a lot of the mementos have a, have a personal touch to them, uh, despite the fact that, you know, the vast majority of them will have never met her. So in that way, it's, uh, there's, there's something pretty special about it. We've got about a minute or so. I want to ask you this because we're going to see uh, the most international dignitaries in London since the funeral for former British PM Winston Churchill many, many moons ago. What's the security like or what will it be like on Monday? Well, I mean, we, well, we, uh, we're going to talk about that on my show on Friday uh, because it's a huge undertaking. Now, keep in mind, the, you know, London has hosted both uh, the Diamond Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee, a royal wedding, the Olympics since 2012. Uh, in the last decade, so they have a lot of experience with heavy security. Uh, what's going to be a challenge here, I think, are the logistics. It's trying to get everyone, that number of world leaders, um, into one place at one time. You know, there's even talk about moving dignitaries around by bus and so forth. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of challenges. They've been planning for this for a very long time. Uh, they certainly have the experience when it comes to these kinds of huge events, but it is going to be a vast challenge, and, uh, and I think we're watching it happen now. I can't imagine it'll go off without any snags. Uh, just getting around central London now has been very difficult for the average person. Um, but uh, I'm told by, uh, by our high commissioner here last night that everything is well in hand and the planning is going fine, despite the fact that they really only have a week, uh, a little bit more than a week to, to make this all happen. Ben, really appreciate your time this morning. We'll talk to Ben uh, tomorrow and on Friday as well as we prepare for Monday's funeral for Queen Elizabeth II. Ben, thanks for the time. Thanks, Rick. That's Ben O'Hara-Byrne. He's the host of A Little More Conversation weeknights at 10 p.m. right here on 900 CHML. He will join us, as I said, tomorrow and on Friday, and we'll hear from him on Monday as well. He will be part of the coverage on 900 CHML as we broadcast live for you the Queen's funeral starting at 6 a.m., and you can imagine the pomp and pageantry and the somber nature of this funeral, but security is a huge part of it.
And there's a delicate balance because it is, it, we want to keep everyone safe, but we also want to provide, or at least they want to provide an opportunity for people to show their grief in a suitable way. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this uh, certainly made a lot of headlines yesterday and continues to do so. The question around whether or not a national holiday, a statutory holiday, should have been um, declared, for lack of a better term, on Monday to mark the death and the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. We heard from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday, who said that Canada will mark the Queen's passing with a national holiday on Monday, but that only applies, as later clarified by Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan, that that's only going to apply to federal government workers. The provinces can, you know, go forth with whatever plan they choose. Follow the federal government, have a a national day of mourning or a day of mourning, which is what is going to be happening in Ontario. That means schools will be open in Ontario on Monday. Businesses will be open. Federal government workers, those in the public sector, will not be working. So politicians, senators, yada, yada, yada. Brings the question, how much does a holiday actually cost the economy? Well, let's ask an expert, because I'm sure I'd be way off. Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, welcome back to the show. Glad to be with you. So this is a federal holiday, but only for federal government workers, as uh, reiterated by Seamus O'Regan. How much is this costing the economy, if anything? Well, let me just start in general with a statutory holiday. One way to calculate this would be to take all the wages that are paid people uh, over the course of a year and divide it by uh, the number of working days. And on a typical day, we spend somewhere between 2 and $4 billion on wages on any given day. So if on Monday uh, people were either uh, not working, say you're a salaried person and you're just not working, or if you're an hourly worker, you work, but then you have to be paid time and a half, it would cost roughly 2 to $4 billion for the statutory holiday. Now, this is not going to be a statutory holiday because, as you noted, the province of Ontario has said we want to recognize this as a day of mourning, but we're not going to say to people, take the time off. So clearly the cost, as it stands at this moment, will be a lot less than 2 to $4 billion. And one more little wrinkle to all this, of course, is that although that's the wages cost, and in essence, I'm paying you to stay home and not work, that doesn't mean that the work won't get done. So... Take an example, suppose I'm a, a McMaster employee, which I am, and suddenly Monday was a holiday. Well, it doesn't really cost the university anything more. They're paying me one way or another over the course of a year. And whatever work that I was supposed to do on Monday, likely I'd have to squeeze that into Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday because the work still has to get done. Or if I'm a bank employee and I take Monday off, I'm still going to have to process those loans or do other things. So it's hard to know actually what a statutory holiday costs, uh, but nonetheless, the fear for many people, smaller businesses in particular who struggle over COVID, don't have a lot of revenue coming in still, try, a tough time making ends meet, just they didn't want to have one other burden and the Ontario government. Uh, and as far as, I, as far as I know, along with the Quebec government and the Manitoba government, they've all decided not to make it a, a holiday, stat holiday on Monday. Those uh, stats are are certainly um, from a wage earning standpoint, but from a public spending standpoint, if it if it was a stat holiday, we wouldn't be going to, you know, Limeridge Mall or or whatever the case to spend our money. That is a real big question mark as well in terms of potential lost dollars during a stat holiday. 
Correct. So a better example would probably be a restaurant. Uh, oh, I, I have a day off. Oh, I can't go to the restaurant because the restaurant's closed, and it's not likely the next day I'm going to go to make up for it. Now, however, you use the example of a mall. Uh, suppose I have a child and I've got to get them a new pair of shoes. Monday would have been a great day to buy them a new pair of shoes. Oh, the mall is closed. Well, then we'll go Tuesday or Wednesday and Thursday. So some of this would be economic activity deferred rather than lost forever. Whereas with a restaurant meal, I don't eat a second or third meal because Monday was a statutory holiday. So this is the hard time calculating exactly what it costs because sometimes we simply defer the economic activity to later in the week rather than on the day of the statutory holiday. A couple more minutes with Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, as you listen to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The, uh, no surprise that the Canadian Federation of Independent Business was quick to plead for a big fat no uh, when it came to a potential stat holiday on Monday. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they are basically an association that represents all these small business owners. Uh, they don't like any change, so they're not overly keen when you talk about increasing a minimum wage or maybe changing the amount you have to pay for a Canada pension plan or employment insurance because all of these things put a burden on a small business and many small businesses are still struggling in this post-COVID world. So this was their argument for not doing it. Now, my comeback to them would be the last time we did something like this was 70 years ago with the death of Queen Elizabeth's father. So this is not exactly an ongoing activity. This is not a new permanent stat holiday. It was a one-off to recognize a unique event, probably not to be repeated again in the lives of many small businesses. I'm not sure it would have been that much of a burden, but it is their job to always put the case of the small business owner first. We'll have to leave it there. Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us this morning. Glad to be with you, Rick. Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, should mention that BC and New Brunswick will have public schools and public post-secondary institutions closed most crown corporations closed as well, so they're going one step further in terms of honoring and marking what's happening uh, this coming Monday. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. With Paul and Shona joining me here on the roundtable, good morning. Woohoo! Uh, the talk of the town, the talk of the country, is this non-stat holiday on Monday to mark the Queen's funeral. It's the focus of our Twitter poll question of the day at AM 900 CHML. Should Monday have been a stats to mark the Queen's funeral? Right now, 57% say, yeah, come on. 43% say, no, uh, and that's the way we're going. Your thoughts, in my opinion, I, I like the way Ontario is doing it. I think we have a, a day of mourning where we can reflect on our own uh, time and not affect the economy, not affect the school day, not affect small businesses that have been over the last couple of years been pulled here, there, and everywhere. I I kind of liked where we're going with Monday. W- what are your thoughts? Go ahead, well, Jonah. Um, I you know we're broadcasting uh, live on Monday. We'll be broadcasting the funeral that starts at six o'clock in the morning before a lot of people would be heading to work. So you know if you are so inclined to want to pay your respects. You could listen to our broadcast or watch it on TV and still be free to do what you want to do and go to work for the rest of the day. So perhaps that's the best way to handle it. I Great lo- plug as well. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I look at it this way. Uh, we have Victoria Day weekend, which in Canada they now call the 2-4 weekend because it's not celebrating Queen Victoria 
Queen's birthday, or actually Queen Elizabeth's birthday is also the celebration on the May 2-4 weekend. We now call it the 2-4 weekend because we think it's a beer weekend. That's what we think. Yeah. Is, that's what we do with statutory holidays. We drink, we party, we don't look back and remember. Day of mourning will be much better spent with kids in school and actually maybe learning what the Queen did. And uh, people, if they really want to celebrate the Queen, get up early and watch the funeral or listen to it here on 900 CHML. You don't even have to get out of bed. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, I, I like the fact that, yeah, these kids are going to be learning about the Queen. I'm sure they have over the last, you know, week or so. Um, very similar to Remembrance Day. I mean, same kind of scenario where, you know, on that day and, and leading up to that day, kids across the country learn about, you know, what sacrifices were made many, many years ago. And I think it's it's it, important and integral for students to learn about, you know, these historical figures and the impact that they had on our society. Yeah, agreed completely. Absolutely. Agreed. Yep. Yep. Uh, great event coming up later on today outside Hamilton City Hall. It begins at 11 o'clock. It's called Walk a Mile in Their Shoes. It's an event in support of the YWCA Hamilton. You're hearing the details in the news with Paul and Shona this morning. Maybe we'll start with Shona on this because I'm not <laughs> sure we'll be surprised, but we might get a list of things in this category. Shona, how many shoes do you have? And do you have a favorite pair, past or present? Okay, um, I've never actually counted the numbers, so I never have to. <laughs> so you're going to give us a ballpark. So I've never had to admit to how many I actually have, <laughs> um, but I would probably put it at roughly 50. Oh, my Lord. And um, <laughs> the correct answer to the inevitable question of how many pairs of black heels can one woman own is <laughs> just one more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And do you have a favorite pair? Uh, I do. Um, they have, they're uh, just very simple looking black uh, pointed toe pumps uh, okay. that actually have a little bow on the back. So they look very, very simple and basic from the front, but there's a little surprise at the back. So it's almost like a mullet, is what you're saying. It's not a mullet. It is not a mullet. I take great umbrage at that, sir. Hey, listen, mullets are coming back. <laughs> so, Paul, Shona has 50-plus shoes. Uh, there might be a one in front of that 50. Hey, uh, hey, 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 not that bad. How many shoes does Paul Tipple have, and do you have a favorite? I think we can take my number and just take Shona's number and take the zero off of it. And I think I have five. I have one pair of black, one pair of brown. I always have a pair of sort of, I guess we call them sneakers that you run around in. And yep. I oh geez I only have four and I have a and then I have a like a, what I call my hikers they're a better pair of sneakers <laughs> so I think that's it oh oh no I lied I do have five I'm wearing the fifth pair right now which is sort of uh, what do you, would you call them just loafers you know the kind you just pull on yeah so yeah okay so that'd well, be it I have you beat by one oh. I have six wow yes. look at you. I, I have what I call work shoes. Yeah. I have my sneakers for when I want to get active, which uh, they're not worn frequently. <laughs> I have uh, two pairs of Crocs. One doesn't really count because I use the one just to yeah muck they're around the garage. They're not shoes. They're, they're not they're, shoes. No, they're in the sandal category. Oh, so you okay don't have then. to. You, so I have if four. we counted that kind of thing with Shona, we would be well into the. No, that's not <laughs> true. <laughs> no, so I have four. Then. I'm yeah. being defamed here. Shoe defamation. I think going I think you got to say the Crocs are in the sandal category, yes, and that's very. That's almost like just above socks. 
So I would you know, agree. Yeah. they're yeah. not sandals so, actually; they're slides. But what do I know <laughs> oh, about geez. it? Another category. <laughs> so I have, I have work shoes. I have sneakers. I have shoes when I cut the grass. Yeah, and um, I have another pair of shoes. Uh, oh, my dress shoes, like if I'm wearing a suit. <laughs> yeah. You know, you the fancy remember shoes. going out? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, those are when I Barely. call my black shoes. So I guess I have, yeah, that's, yeah. So right. you, you and I are about the same. I'm sure I have mm-hmm. if I look. I don't wear sand. When you have feet that look like mine, you don't wear sandals. So I'm sure I have a <laughs> pair of sandals anymore. But now that I see, you know, some of, like, um, Austin Matthews wears socks with sandals, so that's now apparently socks and sandals are cool, so I can wear my sandals again. No, it's not cool, and I need to have a conversation with him. That must stop immediately. It's the same group of people that are bringing back the mullet, so you know. There you go. There you go. Socks and sandals went from uncool to cool in a heartbeat, and it's teetering. It's teetering it's, as we speak. I think if, you, if you're if you a certain age, you look cool. If you are like our age, you just look stupid mm-hmm. wearing socks and yeah. sandals. <laughs> you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, we know this October, October 24th to be exact, is Municipal Election Day here in Hamilton and across the province. Election in full swing in this city and in cities in Ontario. The question is, and there's extensive research being done and has been done by our guest that we're going to talk to about how much does it actually cost someone to run for the mayor's chair in a city like Hamilton or a council seat or even a school trustee seat? And does the person who spends the most amount of money usually come out on top? Christopher Earle is a postdoctoral research fellow at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Christopher, welcome to the show. Morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. You did uh, extensive research, as I said, into election spending in uh, the last municipal election back in 2018. And uh, from what I've read, you found that many candidates spent quite a bit of money. What did you find? Well, it really depends on the race that you're running in and the kind of seat that uh, that you're faced with. So if you're uh, running up against an incumbent, uh, you need a lot of money. Uh, council incumbents can bring a lot to the table. Uh, on average, they would raise around $25,000. Uh, their challengers were usually only able to, to raise around $7,000. It shows that incumbents have an incredible inv- advantage in, in Hamilton. But if you're running for an open seat, people are raising around nine or $10,000. That's still a lot of money to, to have to come up with just to run an election. That incumbent factor, I would guess that, number one, the name recognition goes a long way. Number two, being on council for four years or whatever it is, you get to make those connections in which you can you know, ask an, an entity in the community to say, hey, do you want to contribute to the campaign? And that kind of helps along the way, right? Oh, absolutely. It shows that you can deliver on something. Uh, council incumbents can go to a potential donor and say, you know, look at my record over the past four or eight or in some of their cases, 30 <laughs> something years. You can say, I have done you know, all of these things in the community. And if you invest in me, I'll keep doing them. Successful candidates who ran for council, uh, incumbents, uh, raising $24,000, it really raises questions about equality because it, it clearly shows that not everyone can afford to run for office. 
Oh, definitely. A lot of folks will put a lot of their own money into campaigns. Uh, as I saw from the, the 2018 election, you had folks like Mayor Eisenberger, uh, Councillor Danko, and Councillor Non, each contributing at least $10,000 to their own campaigns. That's a lot of money just to have sort of you know, waiting to, to put into a campaign. A lot of folks who are in the community who are struggling to pay rent or working uh, minimum wage jobs, they may not have that kind of money. And so then we lose out on their their voices around the council table. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Christopher Earle, postdoctoral research fellow at Toronto Metropolitan University, has done extensive research into election spending in the last municipal election in 2018. He also broke it down to age demographics. What did you learn in terms of how millennials go about running for an election and how boomers go about doing so and, and uh, Gen X in between? So it's really interesting at the council level, as you'd expect, baby boomers are able to pull in a lot more money. You know, they're able to raise on average around $13,000. It's likely because they've had a longer time to make connections in the community. Uh, some of them may be entering retirement and they've been able to draw on all the, the contacts they had over the years in, in their, their working career. Uh, Gen Xers, they could probably bringing around $10,000, close to $11,000 on average. But millennials are way down at around six dollars or $7,000. That's for running for council. What's interesting is that for trustee races, the millennials are able to pull in a lot more money. A lot of that was uh, because of the incredible fundraising effort of outgoing uh, public school trustee Cam Galindo, who was able to raise around $10,000. But even without Cam in there, you've got uh, millennials running for trustee able to make that connection a little bit better than their older colleagues, which is a really interesting thing to see. How does Hamilton and running for political office here compare to down the highway in Toronto? Is it uh, somewhat similar? It's very different. In Toronto, you see uh, mayoral candidates raising a massive amount of money, uh, whereas in Hamilton, mayoral candidates will raise around $25,000. In Toronto, it's over 100000 uh, And Mayor John Tory in Toronto, he can raise millions of dollars in each of his campaigns. He's got a lot of really deep connections to uh, some very influential and wealthy folks in, in Toronto. But it's very different here where people are drawing on a much smaller pool of possible donors. Same thing with the council seats. In Toronto, a council seat is this coveted sort of thing because it really can catapult someone into higher office. A lot of folks who are uh, members of parliament or members of provincial parliament uh, got their start on Toronto City Council. And so a lot of money goes into those races. Here, a little less so. Christopher, we'll have to leave it there as we're plumb out of time. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That is Christopher Earle, postdoctoral research fellow at Toronto Metropolitan University uh, with extensive research into election spending back in 2018. If you're running for council, those of you who are doing so and collecting pledges and sponsorships and money, 18 to 30 grand will likely do it. 
for a school trustee, about $1,500 to $3,000. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We're hearing that nearly seven months after the start of the war in Ukraine, Ukrainian forces have made some major gains against the Russian military. Is this a turning point in the war? How is Russia going to respond? Here to help us out to answer these questions is Elliot Tepper, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and a distinguished senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Tepper, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Good morning, Rick. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says his forces have retaken control of 6,000 square kilometers from the Russians this month alone in the east and the south of Ukraine. How significant is this latest development? Undoubtedly, this is very significant indeed. Uh, If you step back a bit and say, okay, what are the Russians doing? They initially, they want to eliminate Ukraine as a a state. Uh, We know that. And their plan A was to do so in a blitz, as we know. They were going to take uh, Kiev, they were going to take the capital, and they were going to probably kill all the leaders, put in their own puppet regime, and say that there is no more Ukraine. It's been joined um, by by popular vote of a, a sham uh, referendum back to Mother Russia. That didn't work, as we all know. So then they went to Plan B, and that's where what we're seeing in front of you takes on some extra meaning. Plan B was to complete their taking over of the Donbass. They'd already, in 2014, seized Crimea, as we know, but also major portions of uh, the industrial and mineral heartland and some of the agricultural heartland of Ukraine, and they were going to expand to the entire administrative unit, the entire oblast of uh, the two parts of the of the Donbass. What we're seeing now is that plan is also going seriously awry. Not only are we seeing significant advances, a breakthrough of the um, front lines, in fact, the second lines as well, of the Russian troops, and Ukraine is really pushing forward and has captured far more as you were opening up, far more land than the Russians have gotten in the last six months. But they are also preventing that goal of consummating, completely taking over the Donbass by Russia. Russia has admitted to losing key cities in the northeastern Kharkiv region. Is is this a potential breakthrough or a turning point in the war? Or is this just possibly the Russian forces thinning out in these areas? Well, clearly it's a breakthrough. We don't know uh, if it's going to be an inflection point that really changes the entire war, because we're still, you know, in a wartime situation on the ground, battlefields, battlefield front lines come and go. But another thing to take note of is that uh, <laughs> the Ukrainian uh, government for a long time has been saying, we are going to go on a counteroffensive. It's going to be in the south. It's going to be around Kherson. And so therefore, Russia put 10,000s of its troops down in that area, thinning out their support around Kharkiv, where they did not expect an attack, and there was an attack successfully breaking through. And that's continuing right up to the Russian border. But in addition to that, there's now fighting in the south, indeed, in key areas around Kherson, uh, so that the Russian military forces are now being whipsawed. Do they go north? Do they go south? And apparently Russia is having, Rick, enormous trouble replacing their troops. They are basically running out of volunteers who say, no, we're not going. And a lot of the units that they had apparently around uh, Kharkiv were only partially 
staffed and they were staffed by volunteers. Or there were a lot of um, soldiers who just weren't willing to stand up to an onslaught, a carefully prepared armored onslaught by the Ukrainian forces. We're talking about the latest developments in the war in Ukraine with Elliot Tepper, Professor Emeritus, Political Science, and a distinguished senior fellow in the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. I've read that Ukraine has captured so many Russian POWs that they're running out of room, which, if true, is just absolutely incredible. The question, though, is how is Russian President Vladimir Putin going to respond to these latest incursions and, and gains by Ukraine? We know one way he's already responded, and it's likely to accelerate uh, more broadly. He's immediately responded by doing something that's contravention to the laws of war. He's been attacking civilian, non-military targets, um, particularly in this broader area, taking out all of the electrical supply uh, capacity, plunging the area into darkness. And we know that and not only can he do this now, but he can also carry this on into the winter toward Europe in order to divide Europe, to stop the unified Europe, which he created by his invasion, much to his shock. Uh, Europe, the EU pulled together, Europe pulled together, NATO pulled together. But by turning off the energy supplies going into Europe at the same time now is damaging all of the infrastructure it can reach, and it's got a lot of missiles to continue that. One of the ways he is responding is to basically turn out the lights, turn off the heat in much of the region around where the fighting is occurring. It is uh, remarkable to see how over the last seven months this war has gone back and forth and uh, we can't uh, wait for it all to end and people to go back to their quote-unquote normal lives, but uh, I fear we're far away from that. Uh, Professor Tepper, really appreciate your time today. Looking forward to the next time we get to chat. Looking forward to that also, Rick. Wonderful chat with Elliot Tepper, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and a distinguished senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and Carleton University. And that last point that we were talking about, the energy installations, those energy-related facilities that the Russian forces are allegedly going after, that is going to be a, a huge issue come not only the fall months, but in particular the winter months, because Ukraine has a much, much uh, similar climate than we do. Lots of snow. Uh, extreme cold could have, um, uh, you know, those those deep freezes, those polar vortexes, you name it. Imagine being in a war zone without, you know, the necessities that you usually enjoy, you know, having bombs and missiles firing all around and not having heat and hydro, a warm place to stay uh, this winter is going to be uh, crucial in the war in Ukraine. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This um, certainly caught my eye. Anything to do with space, especially with, you know, these kind of predictions really catch my eye and catch my ear and catch my interest. And hopefully it does for you as well. There is a, an astrophysicist in Switzerland who believes that we could find evidence of life on planets outside of the solar system within the next 25 years, which doesn't really seem like a long time. Dr. Elena Hyde is the director of the Alan I. Carswell Observatory in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Hyde, welcome back to the show. Uh, great to be here. It is a, a very, very fun, uh, very fun topic, as you, uh, as you mentioned. So let's start off by clarifying outside the solar system means beyond the Milky Way, correct? 
No, that is a good question, though. It is very hard to get a grasp of distances in space. So I always tell people to start off, okay, we're on Earth. <laughs> we're on a planet. Um, our planet is going around our sun, and that sun is our solar system sort of anchor. That sun is what is carrying us and all of the rest of our planets around with it. Now, our sun is just one of uh, billions of stars inside a large, large group called the Milky Way. So when you get out into space, it gets uh, hugely larger and larger distances the farther out you go from Earth. And most of our explorations in space uh, have been bound to our solar system, bound to our sun. We have only one human-made craft that's trying to get out of that. That's a Voyager 1, uh, of course, trying to leave our solar system. It's still in progress after many, many years. Um, and the distances involved are absolutely incredible. So if you can, if you can picture our Earth with reference to our Sun, um, you you quickly start uh, realizing that the distances are going to be really incredible. It takes eight minutes for light just to get from the Sun to us here on Earth. And uh, that is because of the large, large distances involved. If you had a, I suppose most people use a grapefruit for demos. You can put a grapefruit for the sun and like a tiny grain of salt uh, for the earth, somewhere the tip of a ballpoint pin, um, you know, some number of meters away. And it kind of gives you the idea that these things are huge and spread out. But the whole solar system itself is quite, quite small with respect to uh, with respect to the galaxy. So when we're looking around other stars, the distances involved are incredible. And of course, we haven't even managed to find light on our or life on our, our very next door neighbor planet, uh, Mars. Um, although the chances are there might be something uh, under the surface. There's a good uh, um, chance for microbial life. We haven't really explored any of the, the underground water on Mars. And so the question is, what about these other stars? Could we could we possibly look for life on on those other planets? I mean, it seems like a stretch when we can't get to the planet next door, but the method <laughs> is what makes it different because we're not going to be able to physically go to these other stars unless somebody invents uh, some very different form of travel. <laughs> because, well, and, and, yeah. and that was my next question. We've seen some amazing pictures from the James Webb Space Telescope. Because we can't physically go to this other solar system or any other solar system at this point in our lifetime, is it more likely that we're going to get a picture of something or someone, perhaps? Well, that is the question, because there are so many other stars out there in our galaxy, um, hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. If we're able to get images of the planets around them, and in particular, if we can tell what chemicals are in those planetary atmospheres. And of course, this is why some of us have been calling it the uh, Just Wonderful Space Telescope, because <laughs> one of the first things that it did was it actually detected water uh, around a hot Jupiter, which was going in orbit around another, uh, another star. And the combination of how do you image 
other planets and how can we um, detect uh, water on other planets is a sort of a twofold question because if you could find a planet around a star somewhere out there that had an atmosphere like Earth's, for example, um, that had strange chemicals going into its atmosphere where the atmospheric properties were changing in a way that was consistent with what we're doing, um, then you would actually be looking for life like us, which is uh, very, very different from searching for microbes on Mars or life that is not like us on the, the moons of Europa inside our own solar system. And it is an idea that has been around for a while. So I'll just give a shout out to 2020 physical review uh, from, uh, there's an article from Tothan Turyashev who did a really nice paper showing uh, what you might need to do if you did want to image another planet because of course these are and i mean another planet around another star <laughs> these are so far away if we look at earth to the sun we like to measure things in terms of astronomical units or how far is earth from the sun that's one astronomical unit jupiter our big um, you know protective neighbor is 5.2 astronomical units going out to the edge of our solar system pluto goes 30 to 50 astronomical units and voyager 1 which i mentioned before is actually traveling at 3.5 au per year now at 150 AU or so on its way out of the solar system. But if we wanted to build a telescope that could image the surface of another planet at, on any reasonable scale, we would need to base that telescope out at about 550 astronomical units or farther wow. than the farthest man-made craft has ever gone in our solar system. Because that, that's the, incredible. What they I gotta, were saying I gotta is, jump in. Yeah, I, I got to jump in, Dr. Hyde, because we're out of time. That is phenomenal. We'll, we'll have to reconvene on this topic because I find it fascinating and whether or not we can do this in 25 years. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a great topic. That is Dr. Elena Hyde, Director of the Allen I. Carswell Observatory, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.